you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. That's where we'll be this morning, Mark chapter 7. We're in a series where we're working through the Gospel of Mark from roughly chapters 4 to 9. And this morning we're in 7. I'm going to give you an image. I, I think you probably are familiar with this, either in a circus or some kind of Cirque du Soleil sort of performance. The, the guy who spins the plates on poles, I don't know the name, the official name of that art of the spinning plate, but the art of the spinning plate where um, he's like a juggler, but he spins plates. And so he'll... Oftentimes, he might have a little thing he'll balance on his chin. But it follows the classic pattern of, uh, like, performance pattern, which is just like a juggler who would start with two balls. He starts with one spinning plate and kind of gets out of you that sense of awe, like, that's amazing. How does he spin a plate? And then you realize, yeah, he can't do more than one plate. He can do two plates. And... Before too long, there's four plates and five plates, and pretty soon, what originally amazed you, that he could spin up plate, he's got nine plates on poles spinning around, and you're no longer, <clears throat> what you're caught up now is his ability to keep the plates spinning, because they don't just spin forever, they slow down and they fall off. So what started off is kind of, it's amazing that he can do that thing, now is an amazement that he can keep all of these things going. And he travels from uh, pole to pole. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. It was kind of a deadpan look, y'all. We, we can do better than that. All right. You know, he goes from pole to pole and, you know, he's keeping them all going. And, uh, well, I want to give you that idea, <clears throat> this idea of, um, you can set things spinning, but if you don't come back to them, they'll, they will erode. And we're going to be talking about tradition uh, this morning, the role of tradition, the dangers of uh, tradition in cer- certain ways. It's not a full-fledged conversation of tradition, but um, the Lord is certainly talking about it this morning, and... Traditions are things that sometimes we set spinning and walk away from. You know, we adopt something and it becomes a tradition because it was set spinning a while back, but we haven't really gone, returned to it to spin it anew. And that's just a thought I, I think will, will show up. The main, <clears throat> in the story today, the main characters are Pharisees. Pharisees were a sect of Jew. Um, a portion of the Jewish people who had very particular viewpoints about the kingdom of God and why their circumstances as Jews was less than desirable. They believed that the unholiness of Israel had everything to do with their circumstances. And if they could just be holy, if they could fix that, it might usher in the kingdom of God. So they worked at it. They worked very, very hard at not only themselves being holy, but they did something else. They worked hard at making a code of holiness a norm 
for the Jewish culture because it's not enough for them to individually be holy. If Israel's not holy, the kingdom of heaven's not coming. So they worked on being holy and on creating a holy community. Now, the Pharisees are like a punching bag in the New Testament. You know, so they're the bad guys today. And uh, I'm going to avoid two, two errors. I'm going to try to. The first one is to beat up on the Pharisees like we are not them. <clears throat> That's easy to do. And if you were ameners, it'd be easy to get a couple amens out of that. You know, just go beat up on a bunch of kind of an alien community of people. Look how bad the Pharisees are. I don't want to do that. But I don't also want to act like we are the Pharisees because we're not really. I mean, they did some crazy things. Not crazy. They went to extremes with regularity that we would feel alien to us. And in fact, our fellowship is not really that traditional, so to speak. I mean, obviously we have our traditions. Many of you are sitting in the same places that I saw you last week, you know, but I know you weren't here on Wednesday still sitting. So you came back because you set the plate spinning and that's where you sit, okay? We have our traditions. We have our liturgy. We're low church, but we have our liturgy. You get one song, maybe a handshake if you're lucky, like turn around and meet people. Every now and then, but then you're going to get a welcome and then two songs and an offering and then a sermon and then you might close with a song. That's, that's our liturgy. We have our traditions, but uh, we have traditions of worship all around us that are led, tradition is a strong leader in. You know, so a Roman Catholic high church tradition really leads with tradition in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of strength in that. We're, we're not like that. And then there's also, uh, our version of, of high tradition might be fundamentalist. And we're not that either. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to bludgeon the Pharisees as though we're not them, but I also don't want to just simplistically label us as though we are them. What I want us to do today, and this is your job, is to ask, how am I this way? Okay, If we just acknowledge that the Pharisees are not creatures from another planet, but that they are humans who have gone awry with, with some natural part of their human tendency, then it is in us also, and we could be on the lookout for it. That's what I want to do. So if you're hearing me preach, I'm not accusing us of Pharisaicalism, if that were a word, nor am I, I saying hey, we don't have any problems here because uh, you're not wearing a tie, all right? How am I this way is our question. Okay, let me read uh, the first five verses or so. And we'll get going. By the way, if you're long, if you're a long-time Christian, this is for you, right? Sometimes... You guys get to sit back and while the, you know, the young Christians getting beat up, not this Sunday, the longer you've been in the faith, the more plates you've set spinning about the more 
the more assumptions about your what it means to be Christian you have made and they have grown rigid. So I'm not saying old in age. I'm saying old in faith. Just be on the lookout. Here are, here's uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Now, the, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, we need to place this in context. Mark is... There's no necess- this does not necessarily immediately follow the stories that just happened, but Mark has placed it here. You don't get a timestamp here. Just somewhere in the ministry of Christ this happened, and Mark chose to place it here, which is significant, because we just, you heard during worship, and the whole sixth chapter of Mark speaks to the power and magnificence of Christ, all that Christ has been doing. He fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He healed people in Gennesaret in such a way that even if they just touched the tassels on his tunic, they were healed. Serious power. Visual power has been presented to people. And the Pharisees in all of that, feeding of 5,000, walking on, even if they didn't see him walking on water, certainly Jesus did many other things likened to it, right? These are just examples. So they're watching all of these examples of the power of Christ and the teachings of Christ, right? Jesus fed the 5,000 because he taught all day. You have all of this to take in and soak in. And when the Pharisees finally get a word in edgewise, they say... Didn't wash your hands. You hear it? Didn't wash your hands. Like I would offer to you, if we're going to ask, how am I this way? I might say a first step in that is to notice what you take note of. Notice what you notice in church. You come in, Sit down, you go through the experience of Sunday morning. Do you get hung up on something? I mean, that if right now, if kind of being pushed on it, you admit is actually pretty small potatoes. I mean, nothing evil happened this morning, right? You might have wanted a different song, right? If none of you are happy, we're probably about right on that as far as songs go. You know, that, did that hang you up? I mean, you came apparently to worship God. Was there, just notice what you take notice of. 
What catches you? Because these Pharisees miss. Can you just think about what they've missed in all of this? The, the power and the majesty of God has been before them. And they come out of, out of their mouth comes, missed a spot. Now, Mark goes on to describe, he gives a, a little bit of a parenthetical here because Mark is writing to a Gentile audience and he's assuming they don't really understand. Mark is saying here, listen, the Pharisees don't ask Jesus um, about hand washing because they're fastidious and very hygienic. That's not it. Nor is it kind of a cultural faux pas like... Uh, in the Middle East, using your left hand might be. There, he, Mark is making it clear, listen, they ask this question because hand washing and cleanliness is a major religious facet of their life. The impetus behind it is entirely religious. In fact, what had happened is the Pharisees, believe it or not, they, if you ever heard the phrase priesthood of all believers, they had it. They had a, the same doctrine. They believed, in fact, the nation of Israel were priests, like the scriptures say. So what they did is they looked into the priesthood where there are very significant rites and rituals of cleanliness, and they pulled those through their oral tradition into the normal culture. They said, if all of us are priests, then we should all be mindful. We should all be clean at all times. We should live lives of cleanliness. And so they had created a body of law that they stuck on top of the written law to define and clarify what it means to be clean. I'm going to read for you uh, an excerpt. This isn't about hand washing, though there, there are many ways to wash the hands. Depending on what you touched, do you have to wash up to the knuckles? Do you wash with the fingers this way and pour water down that way? And how much? A whole eggshell worth of water or more? It said one of the ways to translate this is to wash with the fist. Do you wash like this or do you wash like this? It depends on what you touched. Really? Okay? Just listen to this. Okay, this, you know, Mark goes on to say, yeah, they, they had a lot of rules. Like, and he's telling Gentiles, and so he's not even being that gentle about it. He's like washing cups and bowls and pots. Okay, I'm just going to read for you. <clears throat> Here is uh, one scholar's accounting of the rules. A hollow vessel made of pottery could contract uncleanliness inside but not outside. That is to say, it didn't matter who or what touched the outside, but it did matter what touched the inside. If it became, un- if it became unclean, it must be broken, and no broken pieces must remain which is big enough to hold enough oil to anoint the little toe. The flat, a flat plate without a rim could not be unclean at all, but a plate with a rim could be. If vessels made with leather bone or glass were flat, they could not contract uncleanliness at all. If they were hollow, they could become unclean outside and inside. If they were unclean, they must be broken, and the break must be a hole at least big enough for a medium-sized pomegranate to pass through. To cure uncleanliness, earthen vessels must be broken. Other vessels must be immersed, boiled, purged with fire, in the case of metal vessels, and polished. A three-legged table could contract uncleanliness. 
If it lost one or two legs, it could not. Figure that one out. <laughs> all right? It could not. If it lost all three legs, however, it could then become unclean because it is now a board and not a table. Things made of metal could become unclean except a door, a bolt, a lock, a hinge, a knocker, and a gutter. Wood used in metal utensils could become unclean, but metal used in wood utensils could not. Thus, a wooden key with metal teeth could be unclean, but a metal key with wooden teeth could not. Take that and put it on top of the written word. So the Lord says, Leviticus 19, be holy as I am holy. And they grab, they... No doubt, no doubt with original good intention of trying to define. No, we all understand how these things can start. No doubt someone wanted to say, what does it mean to be holy? Right? Well, it would be this, and then it would be this, and then it would be this. So that eventually God's command to be holy for I am holy is lost beneath the ivy of a tome of rules that are just nothing but a burden for the people. God says, be holy. And a thousand iterations later, there's a list of behaviors. If you want to be holy, you do this, 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 and you're holy. It's quantifiable. It's measurable. And you can do it. Let me read the next several verses. The, I should say the Pharisees ask the question. They're not asking in a quizzical sort of way. I think it would be wrong to say it this way, that the Pharisees ask, huh, why is it that you don't wash your hands? Just curious. It's not, it has a bite to it. Because if you remember, notice what you notice. Notice the things you notice. What the Pharisees notice, and you see it when they ask the question in the sixth verse. They notice that the behavior of the disciples is such that does not honor the tradition of the elders. That's what they notice. The hands, that's just a tip-off. What they're noticing is, is these guys don't seem to consider the oral tradition of the elders as having authority in their life. And so they ask Jesus the question that way, and this is how Jesus answers. I'll read 6 through 8. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he kind of makes the conclusion here. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, and then he quotes Isaiah. And out of Isaiah, there's, there's two ideas that surface. The first line is, is literally, it's the idea of lip service. That's what he's saying. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Now, I think that's interesting because I always thought lip service referred to someone who, like, said, oh, yeah, I, like, 
yeah, you're my best friend. They said they were your best friend, but, that you, but then they went away and you weren't. That's lip service to me. The Pharisees, I would never have considered as giving lip service. Do the Pharisees say they were serious about holiness but not do anything? No. The Pharisees did a whole lot. It's quite interesting what the Lord is referring to as lip service here because the Pharisees are exhausting themselves on the issue. It's, it's interesting. He's not referring to lazy people saying, oh yeah, 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 I want religion, I want religion, and not really wanting it. He's referring to ardent, fervent, zealous people who are per- pursuing holiness through this oral tradition, and Jesus is calling all of that work lip service. That's interesting to me. This is why, by the way, good people do not necessarily go to heaven. Like the theology of, but she was a good person. The Lord would say, where was her heart? The Lord looks for people whose hearts are near him. I mean, if he's calling all the labor of the Pharisees lip service here, I mean, if, that's, if he's allowing the teaching of Isaiah to fall on them in its fullness, and he's saying, your exhaustive labor is rubbish to me because your heart is not near me, then we must, we must acknowledge that labor alone is immaterial to our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is known by how close we are to him in our heart. That's the first thing he says. The second thing that Isaiah says is, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. He's saying, you have grabbed your body of teachings, your preferences, and you have elevated them, super elevated them now to the point where they have moral substance. You've taken things that are issues of preference and you've made them issues of rightness. It's no longer, you know, like, you like to wear a tie, it's we ought to wear a tie, to you should wear a tie, to we must wear a tie. You see, he's done this. He's not, I like that kind of song. He's saying, you've elevated it from I like it, to we should have it, to you must do it. If you want to have any desire to be holy, we must do it this way. That's, that's what he's saying here is, you've super elevated your preferences. Verse 8 kind of sums the whole thing up. You have, notice it's not that you've left the commandments of God. You leave the commandment of God. What do you think that is? The commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've left it, he says. You have abandoned the commandment of God for the traditions of men. There's a thing about, and God says, be holy, as I am holy. God says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they say, didn't wash your hands. We build this body of, we, this is where you should ask, how do I do this? Okay, so I'm not trying to indict you with the fullness of it, except to say that it is in our nature to replace 
the uncomfortable commandment of simply loving God and being holy beneath him, to replace those big ideas with discrete, accountable ideas, these small things that we can achieve and measure and do and mark and describe, you know, so that we, we take it and we describe it and we form it and shape it and plan it and we outline it and we structure it and we schedule it and we execute it and implement it and we assess it and then we're proud of it. Like, these are the things we did. And I think, I really think these things can start with the right heart. I think, and this is again where those of you, if you've been in the faith for any season of time, you've probably done something. You've, you, you say, God wants me to be holy. And so in as honest a heart as you can, you go, well, what does it mean to be holy? Again, this is not easy. This is actually quite circular. Well, what does it mean to be holy? And you'd say, okay, well, I guess it would mean that I shouldn't listen to that kind of music. And you're not being legalistic. That's coming out of a good place in you, okay? I'm just giving an example. So then you, you stop listening to that kind of music. And for, and for a period of time, that's good and right, and the Lord is pleased. But then over time, it becomes wooden and dry and programmatic. You have a, a quiet time, a morning quiet time. If you are a person with a morning quiet time, and you've been doing it for a long time, you can probably confess there are probably a fair number of mornings where God didn't show up. You just went through the motions. And you can't even know, like, when I feel like God's not even here, do I go through the motions? And as I go through the motions, are they just going through the motions? Or is this a gift to the Lord? What do I do when I'm in a dry season? I, what I, I'm saying is, is I understand how hard it can be. We, we're not always riding on the experience of the Holy Spirit. So how do we pursue holiness without at the same time making rules and lists to assess ourselves about it? Well, here's where the Pharisees got it wrong. Their motivation was on physically being clean. Let's just use this example. They wanted to physically be clean. I'm going to order my life in such a way through washing and abstaining that I am physically clean and presentable to the Lord. Notice in that entire scenario, that is a self-centered, self-oriented way of thinking about religion. I'm doing things so that I am clean, therefore acceptable to God. Okay, that's a tip-off. The things you're doing, if you're doing the things so that you are that way, to tip off, um, I think the Lord would say, you understand, you can never be clean. You cannot be clean. Versus being God-focused in the doing them. I'm doing this thing because I love the Lord, and it's, it, it makes me feel closer to him. It brings me closer to him. It's how I love him. Why do, you, why do you memorize scripture? Because then it's always with me. Versus why do you memorize scripture? So that pretty soon if I work really hard, I can have the gospel of Mark done. Yeah, scripture memorization, by the way, I put a big red flag next to it. 
as something that is beautiful and dangerous to do because pride water skis next to it. Pretty soon you're going to want to like reel it off to people like you're helping them. But really there should be a drum at the end going, you just did it. Right? So I'm just saying these noble things, we spin these plates and if we're not careful, if we don't come back to them, they erode. Why are you doing the things you're doing? That's the question. Verse 9 is uh, really strong, right? So verse 8 says, you leave the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men. 9, he doubles down. He says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Sociologists come and they say, you know, and they do this to talk down at Christianity. They say the truth of it is all people are religious. Everybody really is religious. Religion is a construct of mankind. You know, I'm happy to entirely agree with them. We are religious people. Do you see what he's doing? Jesus is saying you are rejecting the commandment of God so that you can create your own religion. I don't have any reason to deny that. Jesus said it. Sociologists didn't say it. You'll do it. It's in our nature. It's in our nature to feel uncomfortable beneath this loving commandment of, love me. And then we go, love you. Well, how, how do we be good? We want to be good. And God would say, I didn't, you can't be good. This is beyond. You cannot be good. Seek me and love me. Seek me and love me. And you know what? If you seek me and love me, continually, goodness is born out of it in a really great way. But we, I think we just feel so uncomfortable in that environment. We want to appear good to ourselves. And so we begin to do things that set the plate spinning. Jesus gives an example. So he gives them another example. He says, you know, he's indicting them on their cleanliness laws, and then he says, number nine, he says, you actually are rejecting the, what God has to say for the sole purpose of creating your own religion that makes you feel good about yourself. Then he says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Right? So he's going right to the heart of it. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever I would have gained, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Okay, let me explain that a little bit. Corbin was a way of entrusting, placing your property in the trust of uh, like an offering to the Lord. Like our, our little horse field at our house is deed restricted. It's part of the land trust. So all we can ever do there is Root for horses. Horses, go on. You guys are doing great. That's our field. Because we have set that property, that's prior to us, that property was set aside in perpetuity for the township in some way. We restricted the deed rights there. Okay? Corbin would be the same thing, but doing it for the Lord. You might take your property or your land or your field, and you would set it aside and restrict it for the, for the Lord, so that when you died, maybe the, the field is donated to the temple. 
okay? So that people would say really nice things about you at your funeral. That, that's the sort of idea. What Jesus is saying is, is God to- told you, I told you, honor your father and mother. Care for them. You know, they don't have Social Security and retirement and these sorts of things. When the parents aged up, they were dependent on the children for care. He's saying, God came to you in the Ten Commandments to care for them. And he says, and yet you have created all of these rules and restrictions about offering land that you, you're trapping the people so that they're placing land in trust to apparently please the Lord, but now they don't have land to help their parents. He says, you're destroyed the faith. And he says, you don't just do it there, you do it all the time, verse 13. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm thinking of uh, a young man and a young woman coming, coming together. We often call that dating. Like, they are attracted to each other. And so they start to date. And this young man and this young woman, we're, they're Christian. Let's assume they're followers of Jesus. They want to do the right thing. So, you know, as is commonly the case uh, among dating relationships where there's attraction is they want each other physically. But they know there's a rule. No sex before marriage, right? That's how kind of... I'm not critical of where I came from, but that's just kind of how it was taught. Don't do it. So they reduce. But we need to observe the coming together of a man and a woman, this trajectory of two followers of Christ towards the collision of marriage and the consummation of sex. That is not an ugly thing. That is awesome and beautiful, and majestic, and mysterious. And it's a major, major picture in the scriptures by which God describes his church and Christ. And it's this wonderful thing that's about to take place, and yet it's been entirely, not entirely, excuse me, I'm over-speaking, but it has in large part been trounced. The beauty's been lost by don't do it. And the question that then like pops out of their mind, which is, how far is too far? That's their cleanliness law, isn't it? That's the cleanliness law of dating couples. How far is too far? That's so self-oriented. What, are you going to present? What is that? Where is the joy of God in that? I was there. I asked the question. Like I can say from experience, God was not pleased with the way that we reduced this mystery to, so what can I not do? Instead of the young man asking, how can I treat this young lady in such a way that magnifies and glorifies the Lord? 
You see how positive and God-directed that is? Day and night difference, okay? Or the young woman saying, how can I encourage within our relationship the way that we regard one another's bodies in such a way that um, God is always present with us? Lord, how can you be part of that? Now, some of you are saying that's romantic. I'm saying not romantic like Hallmark. It's romantic like artificial. I'm saying tough. God would have us be this way. God would have us reach for romantic and beautiful places. It's just, it's one of these classic examples where we reduce something great to a rule. And then the whole time, right, it's, it's a, God is out of it. Jesus ends up teaching here in verse 14. <clears throat> he calls the people to him again. This was a good enough teaching point. It's, I get the impression like the people were meandering off away and the Pharisees asked this question and he's like, oh, all right, everybody come back. Come back. And then he, he's going to say, now listen, y'all. Watch, hear me, all of you. That's how it translates down south. Listen, y'all. I'm going to say it one more time. He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus goes to the heart of this issue. You think you're holy by the externals. I, I look at you by what is happening in you. Even his disciples don't get it in 17. When they, he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. When we, when we begin to define the things we do as where holiness lies, we are avoiding the heart issue. That's what we're doing. We're saying, I'm holy because I did that. I'm holy because I dressed this way. I'm holy, or we are holy because we behave this way. When we look at those external things as things that make us holy, God is saying, you are avoiding the heart issue. Out of the heart is how I know you. And that's far, it's far bigger, far greater challenge. Anyone can put on, even anyone can dress up. What does that say? Anyone can sing. Anyone can raise their hands and worship. Anyone can put money in an offering plate. Anyone can attend on Sunday. Anyone can have a quiet time. How far is your heart from the Lord? That's the question. Where are you 
And where is God? Let's pray, Lord. You sent Jesus because the problem was so great and so big. You sent him to uh, take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Oh, Lord. We are unable to be good before you. But we are able to love you and want you and seek you and find you. Lord, I pray that there would be a spirit of honesty in the way we notice our lives, examine them. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts maybe to be a little bit less black and white all the time and maybe just thoughtfully reflective on how the things that we do, the things that we involve our life with, how, what are they actually doing for us, Lord? And Father, I pray that, I pray especially even now, Lord, for the, the entire group that wasn't even preached to in this sermon, which is those who have almost no pattern of holy living to critique. Lord, if there's nothing that someone's doing, what must their heart be like? Lord, we pray that we would not follow a religion, but that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.